What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Keith and Mike Watch Deep Space Nine. Today we are talking about Season 4, Episode 3, Hippocratic Oath. It has been a very big weep, weep, week on the uh, on the channel. I guess I didn't save the uh, the new updated uh, thingy. I did it. I swear I did. Save what? Uh, what are we talking about? Our episode title at the bottom there. Oh. Because I, I, I went and updated it. I must not have saved it in the right place. But we're going to, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine because we're going to fix it right here this moment for you. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good, Keith. Thanks so much. Uh, it's deepspace9 slash currentepfooter.png. Yeah, that's the problem right there. Uh, I'm doing good. I, I mean, the week did start with a weep, Keith, uh, because you were having a rough Monday. Have, have things progressed better to this Wednesday? I definitely feel better. I feel more like uh, more like myself. The sun has sort of reemerged for the first time in like five days, which was uh, I think it was getting to me. I yeah. think it was getting to me. But today I feel much better, and I'm uh, I, I feel much better partly because of the sun, partly because of how uh, wonderful everybody's response was to the visitor. Our people, last yes, episode, people did love it. I Keith, am, I'm joyous that the Philadelphia Phillies, my sports ball team. Uh, mm-hmm. clinched a playoff berth last night and it turns out that a couple of was it a week ago a little bit more than a week ago i got this like seat geek offer from some people mm-hmm. with season tickets and basically it was if the phillies make the first round of the playoffs which is the wild card but right. they clinch home field so that they have to play it on their home field they were offering tickets at a certain price not playoff price basically right but that was a big if so it was a bit of a gamble but i did it i gambled and I won, so I'm going to game one of the Wild Card series next Tuesday. I'll be by myself. I'm going by myself, but sure, uh, it's going to be awesome. Sixty thousand people plus pumped for your team, pushing the red. It's going to be it's going to be rad. Oh, I've never been be to a, a playoff game before. Never been to a playoff game. Really? No. In in any of the major sports? Any or? of the major sports? Nope. Oh man, it is great. I'm it so is excited. so much fun. I've only ever been to a playoff a hockey game, mm-hmm. but oh my goodness, the atmosphere for a playoff hockey game is unbelievable. Well, that's great. Well, uh, very happy to hear everybody's doing well. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I think uh, because we have a lot to talk about, yeah, let's get rolling. Let's let's hop right into uh, what you thought of the legendary Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor. Uh, and so we have a. We, I've got a whole bunch to read here. So hopefully my voice will hold out uh, because I have been recording demos all morning. So a little little rough around the edges. It's going to be fine. I've got some. Uh, I've got some cough drops here. It's going to be great. So last week, here is what you said. Joshua Cronin was our lowest rating at an. Oh, that's not true. Second lowest rating at an eighty-eight. Next up is Jason Moe leaving us the super thanks, which means I read your message. Got a lot of them this week. Buckle up. Jason Moe says, I was finally able to watch the review proper, and it did not disappoint. As usual, awesome analysis, and thanks for all the personal insights you brought to it. Mike's theory about Ben being in a continuous loop slightly blew my mind. (laughs) This episode hits me in a way that no others do. I cry every single time me Two, it absolutely wrecks me in all the best ways. Thanks for the in-depth, thoughtful review. Find someone who looks at you like Ben Sisko looks at sleeping old Jake. Uh, Worst to live by. Seriously. Seriously. That is some damn truth. 
All right, so uh, we we brought this up last week because YouTube viewer, not a fan. Mm -hmm. And so uh, before we get into a lot more lauding of the episode, here is the pre-buttle about the visitor from YouTube viewer. Excellent, excellent Gowron, my Gowron last week, by the way. Uh, though I have expected you to shout Avada Kedavra and uh, try to kill Harry Potter. There. I am probably the only person on Earth who doesn't like the visitor. I feel like Mugatu yelling frequently, fr frantically at Zoolander only has one look. I usually skip this episode, but because you guys spoke so highly of it, I watched the watch along with Mike and Jen. I don't believe the episode is bad, but I do believe it is the worst episode of season four, wow. which still makes it better than a third of season one. So here is some reasonings. Uh, the guest actor playing old Jake was good and the emotional beats are good, but there are a lot of problems with the episode that stick in my craw. So we have an itemized list of problems stuck in YouTube viewers craw. One. The biggest thing I like about Star Trek Deep Space Nine is the serialization and everything built on top of each other. If you look at this episode, if you took this episode out, nothing would change moving forward. This is my number one gripe with this episode. Hmm. Two, make me live. Modern media in general has a recurring problem of not making death stick. Reversible deaths are a hack storytelling tool, in my opinion, but don't take my word for it. There's a YouTube link there to many more examples. Um, it, it, sh should I rebut these as they're happening? I think so. No. Uh, <laughs> we did. We talked for two hours about this. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, three, the technobabble was weak and contrived. In general, I do not like Star Trek episodes that rely on technobabble, and I find time travel episodes worse. Four, where was Colomini? He was doing a movie, actually. Yeah, uh, O'Brien. We do know that. We do know that. Uh, O'Brien is the guy who pulls a rabbit out of his hat on the Technobabble episodes, and Jake is closer to the O'Briens than he was to the rest of the Deep Space Nine crew. That's interesting. Five, this conflicts with Jake's character, who is pretty resilient. Jake should be prepared to lose his father because he's already lost his mother, and his father has a very dangerous job, and he is a puppet to the Bajoran prophets who do all sorts of weird crap to him. Also, much like how Dr. Bashir can single-handedly cure deadly diseases in a couple of days, Starfleet has the counselors and therapists far beyond what we have today, and Jake has his grandfather and his aunt, who we never meet on screen, and he has Nog, Bashir, Kira, and O'Briens. I cannot imagine Jake would throw away his life mourning, especially with his father imploring him not to do that. I would... I, yeah, I mean, it's his last parent. I, I, would, I, would, I would not just toss that off. Anyway... Six, semi-spoiler warning. This episode contradicts a lot of Prophets-based plots. Uh, among other things, the Prophets are near omniscient and can prevent this. Seven, semi-spoiler warning. The episode con uh, contradicts a lot of the ongoing Dominion plots and would not have stopped by Cisco disappearing. Well, we don't know that. Butterfly effect. Eight, semi-spoiler warning. The episode contradicts some of the Ferengi subplots, which also would not have stopped been stopped by Cisco disappearing. Mm -hmm. uh, of all the future stuff, the Klingon thing doesn't make too much sense. Too many little things to mention. Ten, euthanasia was apparently okay when humans do it, but not Klingons or anyone else. Star Trek cannot pick a lane on this one, nor are they consistent to leave the issue open. I think that's more of a per... I mean, I don't think he cleared it with anybody. He just did it. Uh, 
11 on this episode this episode could have been fixed with a one minute scene of ben cisco recording a message for jake or having a private talk with him and asking if i die don't throw your life away in mourning yes although do we always just do that because people tell us to uh another thing that would have helped continuity is if young jake could start dating the bajoran he eventually marries and ben cannot stop grinning your review made me appreciate this more 65 out of 100 stem bolts i don't hate this episode but i don't think it should be ranked among star trek's best very interesting points i i I think i think valid i think valid all right on the other hand of the scale delusions at noon comes in on the opposite scale i give this one a hundred also leaving the super thanks that's why we're reading them I give this one 100, not just great Deep Space Nine, not just great Trek, but one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. Up there with my favorite episodes of Twilight Zone, The Prisoner, Twin Peaks, The Wire, etc. No, despite the 100 rating, it is not perfect. But I don't intend my ratings as measures of how close to an episode is being flawless. They are very tightly constructed episodes I'm just mildly positive on and ambitious, incoherent messes that I adore. Agreed. My rating is rather a measure of how deeply and intensely it affects me, and I still remember being destroyed by this episode when rewatching it a short time after my father died. None of its small problems with the old age makeup or the occasional broad performance choice or the ways it arguably doesn't quite line up with future continuity, though I don't find it too hard to think through some headcanon that makes a perfectly credible alternate course for the Dominion War. Uh effect that uh is what fundamentally works here from tony todd's i don't let those let those things affect what fundamentally works here from tony todd's monumental performance to avery brooks final shattering line reading i'd even go so far as to argue that the clumsy hamminess of sitting's interpretation of old age accidentally helps put into relief how truthful and deeply felt tony todd's turn really is Anyway, great art is seldom perfect. Greatness often emerges from the miraculous, way more imperfect parts can, uh, often emerging from the miraculous way, so many imperfect parts can, on rare occasions, amalgamate to the greater whole. And while in some ways this episode is a standalone, I do think that it is greater on rewatch. And I have lost my part. (laughs) That's because I resized and then it's all gone. Uh, it, yes, I do think it gets even greater on rewatch as the relationship between Ben and Jake continues to grow and change, and as its themes and images end up echoing all the way up to the series finale. So yeah, I'm comfortable handing out a 100 to The Visitor, a peak not only of Trek, but of television storytelling in the network TV age. Agreed. JD comes with a 99, Harry Pothead with a 90, Bright Kimball Beersock with a 99, um, want to send my best wishes out to you, Bryant, and your whole family. Um, you know, with the, I was going to ask if I could read your comment online, but that's none of my business. Um, but I, I, I did want to say that I very much, uh, I'm feeling for you. Yeah. A lot of folks, Bryant, Brian, uh, first and foremost, but we just heard from another, uh, viewer from delusions. Yeah. Yeah shared their stories of losing a parent or grief in some sort of way, some on YouTube, some in private patron messages. And 
it really highlighted for me, Keith, once again, not I won't go too far into the weeds here, that media can help us with mm. shared emotions, be them jubilation, be them grief. And I think we're spoiled now because of the internet in that shared experience. We can tweet, we can mm. leave a comment, we can basically in real time engage with media and other fans of said media. That didn't exist as much on network television back in the day because if you were lu- you were lucky if you missed something to catch it on VHS before it would loop around or a DVD got released or whatnot. Right, right. And so this is a cool experience to get to revisit a lot of this media or for some of us watch it for the first time with with a collection of folks, with an mm-hmm. audience, with a community. And listen, I often feel a little bit of vulnerability sharing some of my personal stuff. You, I know, Keith, we've gotten a little better at it over the years since we do it so often now. But uh, we... We appreciate the confidence that you share with our community when you're dealing with whatever the feels are, whether you're passionately for an episode or against it. Always feel free to write an email, leave a comment, let us know. And if you want us to share it, we will. If you don't want us to share it, we won't. doesn't matter. Just want to let you know that I see you, we hear you, and uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, 100%. And I I think that is the, the, the greater purpose of not just media, but art. Is to is to express our shared emotions, express our shared experience, our feelings, and to try to find ways to interpret what we all go through, the human experience, both through direct storytelling and allegory, and and you know, Deep Space Nine is a little bit of both, and I think that that is uh, part of what makes it great. So, um, best wishes to everybody who has lost a parent, but especially to Bryant, who has not done so very recently. Um, continuing on, Worf's Bootshivs gives it a 97. Kevin Miles with a 99. Rowan Talmadge, welcome, with a 99. Sans Deity with a 101. And uh, another incredibly generous super tip. Uh, here we go. Sans says, I'm so glad you guys enjoyed Keith and Mike watch season one of Deep Space Nine out of context. And Mike, a special thanks for saying great clothes, because to be honest, I was really proud of that and hoping one of you would appreciate it as well. Now, on to the episode. I apologize that my comment will be a touch longer than usual, and I've upped my tip as a consequence and as payment for Keith reenacting Gowron, the Gowron scene. Wow, I think I could start my own theater troupe mm-hmm. here. Because this is one of the most emotionally resonant episodes in all of TV history for me, and I have things to say about it. Oh, and it's the first episode I ever taped on a VCR using a timer, hoping it worked. I mean... I remember specifically that time, because, listen, now DVR, you're pissed off if you miss one minute at the end of the game. Oh my god, no. But back in the day, there was a, a Rube Goldberg situation timer you had to hope you set it to the right long play you had to estimate do i want higher quality to put it on ep or uh what was the first one mm-hmm. uh LP, slp slp and just like hope it lasts just two hours or do i put it on s or a uh, extended play and it EP, will record right, six yeah. hours but it'll be sh- real shit quality what do i want will the timer work will someone stop the tv well there was too many variables no i i Honestly, I think successfully getting something recorded on a VHS with a timer is like the equivalent of like hacking the nuclear codes. Oh, uh, 
it was absolutely terrifying. The only to try positive, to Keith, I think you'll you'll agree. The only positive to that period of time was that it, you had it not not foolproof, but an easier chance at avoiding spoilers if it was like a sports thing you were taping. Yes, easier, not not mm-hmm. easy, easier. My grandfather spoiled a Giants game for me in 1995, and uh, you know he's no longer with us. But I'm still pissed. Yeah. All right, I'm not <laughs> talking to that son of a bitch. No, screw you. He came to visit me. He, he apparated in my bedroom, and I still refused. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, uh, Sons continues. Yeah, kids, we had to be there when our shows aired or depend on a timer on a VCR the size of Rhode Island to tape something. Yes, I think I had the Temptations TV movie on the same tape, which is an awesome movie if you Great haven't movie. seen it. Great movie. Oh, I haven't seen it. Interesting. Growing up, I did not have a good relationship with my own father. He largely ignored me and treated me as a nuisance. And when he didn't, and when he didn't end this episode, uh, came out right at a time when I was really in a bad place emotionally with my father. This episode really hit me because of the tight relationship between Jake and his dad, something I wish I had. So I feel like the Ben-Jake relationship was something I held on to. So to see Jake lose his father was very jarring and felt like losing an idealized version of my own father. This episode has always hit me very hard, even though you know that in the end they'll find some way to save Ben and everything will get reversed somehow. It doesn't change the emotional hit that 13-year-old son's deity took. Mm. This is the first piece of media that made me cry. After Free Willy, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, made me cry too. Oh, in the me like the river Jordan. And I will then say to you, you are my friend, but I'm only human. What a great banger Michael Jackson made for that movie. Go check I it don't, out. I don't remember. Oh, that's okay. Anyway, Michael Jackson can go to hell. Anyway. uh, Could be there already, Keith, for all we know. With any luck. Uh, So it was my first real brush with fiction really affecting me in that way, and I've held on to it ever since. I mean, I named my son Benjamin, and if I had a second one, he would have been Jacob, largely because of the father-son dynamic in this episode. Honestly, I can see why some people can dislike this episode. Normally, the strength of the show is in its serialized nature. What happens in the past continues to have an effect on the present and the future. This episode is the antithesis of that because nothing that happens in it really matters in the long run of the show, except to showcase the bond between Jake and Ben, which I think is important why it doesn't and why it doesn't make this a complete throwaway storyline wise. I also think for this is Keith again, um, Ben remembers this. So I think this affects Ben's thinking moving forward his emotional experience i think i think this this might affect how he raises jake in the future it might affect choices that he makes um i i i think it doesn't i, I think it doesn't exist in this bubble of space that doesn't have an effect on anything because of his emotional experience of this and who knows what else he learned about what the future might have been and perhaps influenced how it moved forward and i would guarantee you 100% that the experience of filming the episode and making some of these choices and consequences and, and decisions in the moment in the room on set affect his Ben's or Avery Brooks' performance moving forward in in mm-hmm. even the smallest subtle ways. Yeah, I agree. 
<clears throat> Sorry. Uh, Sons continues, and I agree with Mike that the future versions of everyone but Nog are just not great. I admit that this episode does have flaws, but the entire point of art is to make you feel something deeply. And that episode succeeds beautifully here for me. Just as a magnificent painting may have a few flawed paint strokes, this episode isn't perfect, but it pulls on my heart and doesn't let go. So my rating for this episode is inflated in a way, but damn it, it's my rating. The scene at the end between old Jake and Ben is extremely powerful, and I cannot think of a more poignant moment in any Star Trek show or movie. With all due respect to Leonard Nimoy, Avery Brooks' warmth and happiness to see that Jake ha what Jake has become is enough to make me cry, and then when his, his counterparts... Uh, then when he counterpoints that with the pain and sadness to see Jake dying, I completely lose it. I'm tearing up as I'm writing this, in fact. That scene is my favorite is my favorite Avery Brooks moment in the show. And the scene and the scene in all of fiction that has affected me most emotionally. Bravo. But I have to mention my one gripe with the episode. As great as it is, I am saddened that the best Jake episode in the series and the best acting done by a Jake is all done by another actor. That's fair. It's Tony Todd who creates all the emotional moments with Avery Brooks. It's Tony Todd who does all the heavy lifting, and Sarah Lofton may not, may as well not even be in the episode. I understand why they did this, did it this way, because obviously Sarah Lofton is just not as skilled enough for an episode like this. But it's just unfortunate that all for all the flowers for Jake's storyline go to an actor who isn't Sarah Clothin. That is something I won't forgive. I bulge or oh, forget. But this gets 101 self-sealing stem bolts. And hell yes, they're self-sealing uh, in and out of context. And damn, next week is Hippocratic Oath. Looking forward to season four list. I forgot how many goddamn bangers there are. This is going to be a fun-ass season on Keith and Mike. Watch Deep Space Nine. Kapla! Woo! Fantastic. Uh, thank you, everybody, for, for sharing all of that. That's a lot of personal stories and vulnerability, and it's I, I very much I feel honored to have that all shared. Uh, Yo, let uh, me say it. I'm going to say it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humble brag here, Keith. Yeah. Look, there are channels out there, millions, millions of subscribers, making millions of bucks. And don't get me wrong, I love that. But <laughs> to get just five of those types of comments a week, hell, just mm -hmm. one of them, insightful, yeah. informative, conflicting, yet interesting in their differences. Intelligent, intelligent, well thought out. Like, we have put together a pretty cool little community. You're going to see the Patreon is growing, too. People are watching along with me every week. It's really just, I am humbled. It's special, and we do not take it for granted. We never will. We don't know. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, this is why we have chapters, folks. If you wanted to get to the episode, now is your time to talk about Season 4, Episode 3, Hippocratic Oath, which aired on October 16th, 1995. We were still listening to Mariah Carey's Fantasy, Mike. Ooh, fantasy baby, we're running out of time, so let's just get to it. The top movie, What's in the Box, continued to be 7 in Week 4 of its Top of the Charts. All it took 
to be the top movie in October of 1995 was eight million dollars, if you'd believe that. So uh, we know it's top of uh, our charts, our hearts, the uh, the top movie, the top song. What was on TV this night? Uh, nothing to note, Keith. I will say that there was a show called Ned and Stacy, and I'm I'm forgetting what was Ned and Stacy. It was on Fox after Melrose Place. Uh, I didn't have Fox at that point. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I guess the only other thing of note is that your Denver Broncos, Keith, mm-hmm. shut out the Oakland Raiders 27 to nothing on Monday night football. Ooh. Never forget. Who, 95, who would have been? It would have been Al Michaels, it was, uh, Dan, Dan Deodorf, and uh, Frank Gifford. Frank Gifford. That, and I'll bet you that's John Elway. For the Broncos and Jeff Hostetler. Jeff Hostetler. Wow. For the, uh, for the Oakland Raiders. That would, that would be my guess. All right. What was Voyager doing? Well, they were doing the episode Partruition, which is the episode where they discover an alien baby. And uh, we told it on the Patreon, but uh, I believe, oh, I, I, you know what? I think Jim just let me believe this, but mm-hmm. I, I choose to continue to believe it. But that is the only piece of Star Trek history that I personally, Keith Varney, had an influence over. So uh, well, right. by helping, by helping Pitt uh, choose the pitch of the alien baby's cry uh, <laughs> one day. A in promise Jim's that was made, never mm-hmm. kept, which added to the list. But I still am put, pushing for because I wanted. So Keith has two members of his family who worked on various Treks in the mm-hmm. sound department. His brother being one of them. Uh, yep. There was chat that we could maybe get your brother for a Patreon-exclusive little chitty chat about his experience working on the show. Is that something we could still do, maybe? Oh, yeah. No, he's 100% on board. I've just been too lazy to set it up. All right, there you go. So, manifesting. Oh, oh there it is. Manifesting. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll manifest it. We'll manifest it. All right. Uh, yeah, no, we should definitely do that. All right. So, the, uh, you know, if, if we were thinking about the um, how how heavy this last episode has been and we're like you know what i really want to take it out on uh, my enemies you could do so with a weekly world news headline that teaches you how to put a curse on your enemies and ruin their lives sorcerer and something author damien mulkin does it say <laughs> i there's no way i could read that from here. i tried he looks like a wrestler it might might <laughs> Could very well be a wrestler. So uh, there you go. If you're curious how to put a curse on your enemies and ruin their lives forever, subscribe them to this channel. You know, get them a life in musical theater. Tell them, (laughs) yes, that's a good way to spend your life. (laughs) Oof. Oof, oof, oof. Hit some truth. All right. So the Hippocratic Oath was directed by none other than Rene Aubergenois. We've learned how to say it now. Now, Keith, in my own little bit of trivia trivia. Oh, let's hear it. I learned that Rene was a little flustered because he was supposed to direct The Visitor. But Colomini, so talking to our our friend, uh, YouTube viewer, Colomini actually was booked on a movie role, so they had to shift these episodes around so Colin could do his O'Brien-centric episode, and Rene had to direct it uh, a little underprepared. Yeah, well, they they flipped directors. Oh, TV, how scary must that be? All right, so this episode was written by Lisa Klink, who this is uh, did the teleplay. This is Lisa's only episode of Deep Space Nine, but became a staff writer and editor on 74 episodes of Voyager after this. 
in Nicholas Correa, who this is also um, his only episode of Deep Space Nine, did one episode of Voyager uh, with Lisa. So now I think it's time for something trivial, Mike. I agree with you, Keith, but can I can I indulge you for just a second? Sure. Okay. Hold on. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, I just... You've been waiting for some more cat content. How oh, cat content! How cute is my little man? What's up, DD? Good boy. Oh. What a good boy. You want some trivial trivia? Okay. Yeah, you want some trivial trivia. Now, Keith, waste your time with trivial trivia. Okay. So, hold on. If we're going to do that, we got to do... There's Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Hey, buddy. Good, buddy. Thank you for uh, sleeping through the episode and, and not, uh, you know, wanting to type things. His new, his new favorite thing is to now type things into the scripts I'm working on. It's pretty annoying. All right. So, Trivial Trivia. The role of Garand Agar is played by Scott McDonald. Mike, do you remember who Scott McDonald was? Wasn't he Tosk? You read it. You read that ahead of time. I did read it. (laughs) I I just couldn't wait to blow your mind. For a moment, my mind was blown. I'm like, nope, I don't buy that for a second. (laughs) I gave it just enough pretend thinking. Uh huh. It was it was a good performance. It was a very good performance. But unfortunately, I know you're a liar. So there it is. (laughs) Come on, buddy. Come here. All right, so uh, in an interview with the official Star Trek website in 2011, Rene Aubergenois thought this episode was one that stood out the most for him out of the eight he will direct throughout Deep Space Nine. That's pretty good, eight. Pretty good. Yeah. Scott McDonald, who the aforementioned Mike, do, do you remember who he played? Scott McDonald? Yeah. Yes. Good. Who was it? I have no idea. What are we even talking about? <laughs> it's, the, it's the same guy. <laughs> you had it teed up. But now it was gone <laughs> in seconds later. Jen sent a text. I started reading it. <laughs> you were so proud of yourself. You're like a goldfish over there. You remembered it once. <laughs> then it's gone. What? Who? What are we talking? What are we doing? Geekly? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that was funny. He appeared in... <laughs> uh, Scott McDonald has appeared in all of the Star Trek television spinoffs, at least up until the uh, new Trek. His most frequent Star Trek roles was that of the Zindi reptilian commander, Dolem, during the third season of Star Trek Enterprise. But he also played the roles of Tosk on Captain Pursuit, Agar in this episode, Sub-Commander Nevek on Next Generation, Face of the Enemy, and Ensign Rollins on the Voyager episode, Caretaker. Dude uh, made a good impression, clearly. As Lisa Klink had recently completed an internship with the staff on Deep Space Nine as a writer, she was given a chance to write the teleplay. Klink wrote the first and second drafts, and Ronald D. Moore provided an uncredited polish. And Clink was pleased with Moore's work, calling it great. Mike, you want to know what else is great? I can't wait for you to tell me, Keith. 
It's our patrons, and I can't wait for you to tell me all about that while I rest my voice. The Patreon is growing. We have a family that's filling the slide. And you know what, Keith? I want a second slide. That's what I want. Uh, the aforementioned Bryant, Kimball, Beersock, Casey Clark, Jason Moe, Joshua Cronin, Andrew Hayes, Jorge Novoa, and the Mysterious. Worf's big old boot shivs, Charles Babbage, Rich, Richard Coleman, Harry Pothead, Peter Benke. Benke? Bank. Benke. 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 CRM Productions, Nikolai Ivanovich, Lobachevsky, Delusions at Noon. Yeah, let us know, Peter. Uh, Steve Brown, YouTube viewer, James Hubbard, Lisa Kislov. Welcome, 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 welcome. JD Makes, Colin Dagan, Chris Mitchell, CRM, Pat, and Joshua Cronin. They sent us stuff in the mail. Check out our last episode of Star Trek Toys. Even if you're not a usual viewer, it was a really fun episode where we opened some mail. Next week's fun, too. Keep checking it out. Toys is back, y'all. Uh, it never went away. The patrons get to watch me watch every GD episode of everything, uh, sometimes in my jammies, sometimes half awake, but always having fun with the patrons. We do Ask Me Anythings, which we owe one now, Keith. We are sure do. We got a lot of stuff, fun stuff in the making, so we're going to do another. We did a, a family viewing, I should say, of Star Trek V, and me and Keith have something in the works for Spooky Season. We're going to come up with something, be it Trek or otherwise, to watch in real time with the with the patrons, which I think will be fun. We had a man, we had too much fun last time, so we really did. Uh, we're gonna eat candy, and I have all kinds of fun this time. So jump in. Most importantly, uh, it's just a great. If you think the comments here are incredible, they're really good on the page usually. And uh, there's a patron RSS feed where you get all of our stuff in podcast form, just in one drop. Uh, but mostly, you're become a producer of the show, so you can tell us what to do. And you get our undying gratitude. So patreon.com slash k and uh, And what, what we decided to do, um, because we had all, all of these tiers and we never felt right about like walling off our content. Um, all of our content is available on every tier. Including um, you, $1. Including $1. And uh, because we don't want it to be sort of financially exclusive. Um, there are some people who can who can afford more. There are some people who can't. And so we, we don't want it to be to have sort of like a financial exclusivity thing. Mm -hmm. So go in there, uh, contribute whatever you, you care to, whatever you can. Um, everybody gets everything because I just think that's, that's more Star Trek, right? Yeah. And you know what, so. if, if you, if, if, if you, uh, are feeling like you'd like to give more from your, you know what, maybe just maybe find a friend and get them a subscription too. I, I don't know how you would do that, but, uh, pay it for it. That's what we're all about here. Well, indeed. All right. Yes. So, Back to Hippocratic Oath. Our guest stars include Scott McDonald. Do you remember what he was on before? Wasn't, wasn't he on Tosk? He was Tosk as Goran Nagar. Stephen Davies as Arak Taral. Jerry Roberts as Meskoglan. Marshall Teague as Demozuma. And our co-stars are Roderick Gar as Shady Alien. And Michael H. Balius as Jem Hadar. One... All right, we are now, what, 45 minutes into this? Let's go to our screen room, shall we? Hold me. To be with my brother. Mm-hmm. Keith, you're very and, tall. I'm very short. Let's meet in the middle. I mean, well, look, you may be shorter, but I'm fatter. So it's all sort of, <laughs> it all evens out in the world. 
<laughs> okay, so in our teaser, Worf sits in Quark's bar staring at an alien who he suspects of being a smuggler. Quark is like, uh, so what? We have a non-discrimination policy here, but Worf is clearly not thrilled. Kira then comes up, and Worf asks why Quark isn't in prison. We've asked that question ourselves a few times. But Deep, Deep Space Nine is a very different place than the buttoned-up Enterprise. Meanwhile, O'Brien and Bashir are coming home from a mission in the Gamma Quadrant. O'Brien is complaining about a fight he had with O'Brien because with his wife. I wrote down O'Brien. I wrote down O'Brien. He was buddy? having a fight with himself. We're all fighting with ourselves because he turned their bedroom into a man cave. But Bashir has his back. It's interesting because both of us have that have dealt with that before, mm -hmm. with uh, with your your wife and my ex wife, like. Both actresses, they disappear for a long time, and maybe you do rearrange things a bit. Yeah, or she gives me crap because I, in order to give her the space in the bedroom, I created the studio. The studio, which she's like, oh, now you got a beanbag, now you got this. And Keith, what do I find out when I come home? She's in the studio, sitting in the beanbag, watching TV. And I'm like, oh, huh, interesting. Not so bad, is it? Yeah, well, yeah, but like, you know, she got half of a bedroom and you got a whole studio. She got the whole bedroom. She gets everything she wants. She gave, she was he, mad that I'm going to the baseball game. And I'm like, would you like to come to the baseball game? Would you like to take a day off of your off-Broadway job and come to a baseball game? And she's like, no. I was like, well, then why can't I go by myself? Let's litigate well, this here on the air, Keith. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I, should I start by having your back and then we have a colossal fight for the rest of the episode? But then we'll come to a tentative sort ceasefire of? at the end. Yeah. I mean, but to be fair, most of our friendship is a tentative ceasefire. Yeah, that's so. a good point. But uh, you know what? Let's not play squash on Monday. Maybe Wednesday. Maybe Wednesday, because you know I don't want to exercise. All right. So uh, O'Brien wonders why she can't be more like a man. And uh, they're about to start singing Gilbert and Solomon, I think. Then they discover a mysterious power reading. It could be a ship in trouble on a planet. And they're, you know, hey, we're really far from Dominion territory, so we might as well check it out. And of course, they are hit by a plasma field and have to crash land on the planet. We see uh, a little bit of the shuttle crash landing. Then uh, we get out on a foresty planet, and out of the air comes the gem Hadar. And that is, uh, you know, that's a pretty good act. Pretty good teaser. Definitely. And we also got, like, one of the... So, the, the like, I wish you were a man line was, is almost cringy, but somehow avoids being cringy. But then it's wiped away because you get one of the best lines of the episode where he's like, he's like, oh, I didn't crash. It was it was like a married couple fight. He's like, oh, I didn't crash land good enough for you? Why don't I try it? Would you like me to try it again? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a good uh -huh. line. Yeah, no, I mean, like... You know, romance has really... It's become... So, it was so annoying in first, and then it's become such a kind of special Isn't thing. it fun? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's his work wife. Yeah. And, you know, but we know a little thing about being work spouses. A little thing? <laughs> we're, we're straight up common law at this point. Uh, for sure, for sure. So, you know, we are... We are O'Brien and Bashir. I'm definitely O'Brien. You're definitely Bashir. All right, so okay. in that... Yeah. So in Act 1, O'Brien and Bashir are taken prisoner 
God, what a great Halloween costume if you and I did anything social in our lives. (laughs) (laughs) That no one would get? Yeah. Well, look. No one gets our enterprise anyway. I mean, that's true. Look, somebody might be uh, coming up with some some new custom figures of us as O'Brien. Keith as O'Brien? Mike as Bashir? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Come on. That's pretty good. So, uh, Wait, is, that, is that real? Or did you just make that up? No one might be cold because we, we talked about it, remember? No. Mike has Tosk? Michael McDonald is known for? <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway. Look how good uh, the Defiant looks there. I know. I know. It's like that. It's, on, it's the, uh, the intro you. I try to make you watch every time, but you don't. You know what I decided to do on the watch longs, Keith? You don't, because you don't watch them. But You're right. To respect, I'm not, your, I'm not a to respect myself and to respect your wishes, I watch it on 4X speed. I don't fast forward it. I watch it with Zoud at 4X speed. That sounds about right. That 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 definitely is like the mic, the micest solution to all things. <laughs> and then I delete it from the, from the Dropbox afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Then you delete the entire Dropbox <laughs> so it doesn't take up virtual space, which isn't real. Anyway, can we talk about the episode? The Jem'Hadar start interrogating them, but they uh, really just let us know that they already know already most of the information, it was which is like, uh-oh. Yeah. They plan to execute O'Brien first because he's more experienced in combat. And they assume that Bashir is worthless because he's into science, uh, which, of course, the Jem'Hadar are not. Meanwhile, on Deep Space Nine, Worf tries to rat out Odo for not arresting Quark. But Sisko has his back. He encourages Worf's security vigilance, but uh, security ain't your job anymore. You're here to coordinate Starfleet activity. Bashir and O'Brien are in the cave in the same security field that we saw in Season 2. Nice little continuity there. Bashir can tell that something is making the Gem Hadar nervous. Bashir thinks they need a doctor, and O'Brien immediately says, Don't help them. Whatever weakens them gives us a better chance for survival. I thought it was a great beat um, because... Who's my boy who played Tosk? What's his name again? McDonald? Farmer McDonald? Old, old, uh, Bobby uh, McDonald. Bobby McDonald. Bobby McDonald, his first take when Bashir says he's a doctor is so subtle, but but overt enough that I clocked it. And I was like, oh, it sounds like they need a doctor. I mean, I guess the, ep- the title of the episode kind of helped with that. Uh, but it's a little, It's a little doctory. Yeah, but anyway, well, it's you know, the Hippocratic Oath is that they you if someone is in need, you have to help them, right? You can't you yeah. have to do everything in your power to keep them alive. Uh, yeah. So I thought that that no was, harm. it was very subtle, and uh, so when that beat came, already the 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 foundation is set for two very different approaches to this ostensibly yeah. prison combat situation. Yeah. No, and and I think it's. I mean, it's it's. A terribly Star Trek premise, right? And and having this debate and putting you know two of our heroes on opposite sides of of a debate with pretty good points from both of them. So the Jem'Hadar comes and grabs Bashir. He, he brings takes him, him to, to Gilligan to a, Island. 
takes him to Gilligan's Island and uh, where he set up a makeshift lab and says, you're going to work here. He needs Bashir to create what we now know is named Ketracel White, the enzyme that all Jem'Hadar are dependent on. The leader of the Jem'Hadar, Goran, explains that the Vorta control the Ketracel White and that they have come to this planet to escape the Vorta. And the Vorta are the founders or is a different thing? No, the, the Vorta are... Um, We've seen them a couple of times. They're sort of like the middlemen. Oh so you, yeah, they you, were on the ship that one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, so you have the weird looking, have the weird, the weird looking middlemen, yeah. right? Uh, we're gonna find out much more about them as we move forward. But yeah, so the Dominion set up. You have the founders, i.e., Odo's people. You have the Vorta as the sort of like the uh, the store manager, and then you have the Jem Hadar as the soldiers. Uh, so these. Jem'Hadar want to leave the Dominion. They want more of a life than one as a slave, essentially, which they are. They only have enough white to survive another five days, and they want to break the addiction. And Goran knows it's possible because he is free of the drug. He crash-landed here three years ago and survived 35 days without white. Then, after he was rescued he decided to come back here with his men. He then shows Bashir that all of his men who are going through are, are going through severe withdrawal Get down. from the Ketracel White, which is really interesting to see the Jem'Hadar being vulnerable in this, in this way. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we talk more about as, as we go there, but, and we've mentioned it before, how ingenious a control system this the 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 Ketracel white is um evil but also ingenious so, so Bashir, and, but it's but uh, yeah. important to know going forward because i <clears throat> there's one bit of the subplot that i kind of on first watch didn't think too much about and so on your this kind of re this uh jaunt through the plot summary again i want to make note of is that the other Jem'Hadar with him here mm-hmm. also made a conscious choice to escape the Vorta. Yeah. yeah. So the decisions they'll make later, we it, there's sort of blurred lines between is it lack is it a vote of no confidence in their leader or is it the drug talking? There's still a lot of a lot more questions raised here than answers, but in those yeah. questions we get some answers. Or maybe some potential answers to the a bigger thing, which I think makes the episode stronger for it. Yeah, well, I mean, and and it is, you know, they they were genetically developed to be mindless killing machines, but as is true with all things, well, maybe not as mindless as you think, but certainly battling um, their programming versus. I hate their to experiences. get ahead of ourselves, but I have to make the point now. What we're getting a little bit in this episode is what we wanted from is it seems to me like what we've been asking for for the from the gorn in strange new worlds like right are they just mindless killing monsters or are there nuances is there nuance in character development with them we didn't get that there i i thought about our conversation about the gorn while watching this episode yeah me too cuz this is it done very well this is exactly what you were asking for yeah yeah well that's why deep space 9 is deep space 9 kids so uh Anyway, um, 
Bashir agrees to help. And Goran says, uh, I liked to my, I lied to, this is what, Keith I liked really my fast. Mommy. I liked my mommy. It didn't have a mommy. Jemandar says, I lied to my men. And we have a lot less Ketracel White than they know. So clock is ticking. Meanwhile, back in the station, we have a meeting that talks about the Klingons being aggressive all over the quadrant to reassert themselves after the embarrassment of not being able to take Deep Space Nine. Gowron is still hanging on to power by pretending he won and declaring victory and bigfooting around the galaxy kind of like Putin. They're looking for a chance to start another fight, which it, it's such a subtle little quick conversation they have there, but it it is so like honest about what happens constantly all over all throughout human history. I mean, you you have these dictators, you have these authoritarians and they are pretty vulnerable and so they have to be aggressive in order to hold on to their seat. I mean, a lot of people speculate that's why Putin invaded Ukraine was to uh he thought it was going to make him more powerful. Oops. Anyway, uh, so the so the Klingons are kind of dangerous, going around spoiling for a fight. Worf pulls Odo aside and uh, rats him out about something else, and uh, uh, rats Quark out about something else. And Odo is like, "Stop pissing on my tree." Later that night, O'Brien and Bashir pretend to work while O'Brien fashions a weapon. They plan to zap the guard and make a run for it. And they play, uh, they play a little uh, play along of the condescending officer game for the guard. Garan comes up to check, and Bashir lies badly about the progress that he's making. Then the guard notices the weapon and accidentally zaps his buddy. Uh oh, that didn't work. So has Bashir at this point, up to this point, actually been just slow playing? I think so. Yes. So he hasn't actually started his research yet. I don't think so. Which I guess makes sense, because in the next scene, after this threat here, he's actually made some progress. <clears throat> right. So and he's a little I more invested. Yeah, I think I think he's, at, at this point, following what O'Brien wants to do. So if and, he had and, just started right away, he might have actually made a breakthrough, because he was pretty close. Seems like he got pretty close. Uh, maybe? It, it is ambiguous how close he got at the end. I don't know how close he got, but... Um, I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to see. Good question. What do you what do you folks think? Uh, all right. So uh, Goran makes his guard not kill O'Brien, and Bashir tries to heal the wounded Jem Hadar, but he's got a torn knee, and they can't. Uh, you know, he's like every NFL player this season. He's blown out his knee and can no longer stand. So he says that he should be killed to help the rest of his men. We're learning a little bit more about how the Jem'Hadar function. Uh, but Goran says, we're here to be free of the Vorta rules. So uh, if your death can benefit the group, you die. Back on Deep Space Nine, Worf can't give up his need to bother Quark. So he sneaks into the bar late at night to watch Quark close up. Time passes, and Quark eventually meets with his contact to do some sort of transaction. Worf goes straight to Odo and demands to know why Quark wasn't arrested. Odo once again says, piss off. 
I think, fairly. Poor Odo. Like, every Federation officer that has ever come to the station has butted heads with Odo because of the way Deep Space Nine works. But we're going to talk more about it later, which I think is... Yeah, I mean, like, uh, Odo became... was able to find a meeting of the minds with Garrick. So you'd think he and Worf share some similarities in the security department, why they couldn't be pals. You feel like he could have maybe let him in here, but maybe it's so undercover that he just had to keep it neat to know. Well, I, I think there... I mean, Odo is territorial to start with and i think he's defensive i I think he is actively defensive um because the federation is always trying to undermine and replace him um and like he understands the dynamics of the station and how different it is from a starship well and we'll and cisco will talk about it later but you know i think his first instinct is to tell him to piss off and then eventually break through um which i think is pretty human for a goo person. So back on the planet... Of Bashir's which I have th- an action figure. So you sure do. Yeah. Back on the planet, Bashir starts doing some actual research, inspecting Garan, whose body is mysteriously able to produce the white. He brings up Odo, talking about uh, how they discovered a Jem'Hadar baby on the station. And Garan says he's never seen a founder. They're almost a myth to the Jem'Hadar, and that the founders are gods to the Jem'Hadar, but their gods never talk to them. They only want them to fight and die for them. Oh, I thought that was very interesting. It's a great sort of... little treatise on religion. Mm-hmm. Religion as a, as a, I guess with a pejorative view, a pejorative view, right? Like a, as a, as a control device, as a civilization control device, which... I tend to mostly agree with, but that's neither here nor there. It's you, you see all of the checks and balances of control being imposed upon the Jinmadar. It's impossible yeah, I mean, not to, I'm going to think purposefully, to elicit a lot of sympathy for the Jinmadar here uh, from yeah. a lot of different angles, you know? Yeah, no, and I think it's sort of any authoritarian structure, right, where you have somebody, some mysterious figure at the top using everybody else's pawns. Um but also, it is interesting. Oh, go ahead. Uh, just from a design element, two twofold. One, if you haven't noticed it, uh, for, the, for the, our friends on YouTube, the effects and the the, the makeup and the because that's a mask, that's prosthetics, right? And somehow he's able to give it a pretty pretty powerful performance through this mask. And some people, I think it was it was the a special effects guy. I read the companion this week, and uh, he was saying. That or it was Renee saying, some actors unfortunately but understandably get lost behind the prosthetics, but some pop through it. And like if you pull up, I don't have one prepared, but if you pulled up a side by side with Tosk here, yeah. this guy you can tell which actor it is, who it is through that prosthetic. It's, it's just eyes. Impressive. It's yeah. all it's it's all the eye work, um, and it's something Renee certainly would understand. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's a really really good creature design. I, I think the Jem'Hadar design as a bad guy is probably the best, like, adversary design other than the Borg. I, yeah, I, I think really they're cool. really, really cool. Uh, anyway, so it is really interesting to think about the the founders setting themselves up as deities to to the to the Jem'Hadar. 
Uh, Bashir tells O'Brien that Goran is questioning his entire belief system. But O'Brien says, look, you're just being manipulated. You know, he, he knows that the Federation doctors are designed to be uh, empathetic. And so uh, that is, you're just being played, buddy. But Bashir believes Goran and wants to help him. And he thinks if he can help the Jem'Hadar start thinking for themselves, this would leave the Dominion without a fighting force, which is really interesting. But O'Brien says, or they could maraud around the galaxy with nobody to control them. We can't risk helping them. And I think they both have really interesting parts, points here. Um, and thus the ethical question of the episode. There is a strategic advantage, though. Even There's a third element we never discussed, which I thought was kind of, which popped to my mind. <clears throat> yes, it's possible that not all the Jem'Hadar would be uh, sympathetic. We can't, it's it's quite, I, I would say it's a reaching hypo- hypothesis that if we take them off the drug, that would make them kind-hearted, right? There's, right. <laughs> that's right. a leap. However, if we separate them if we give them the option to separate from the founders, from the Vorta, the, the founders lose some footing and may need some help or assistance or whatnot. So it does, it would create discord, which is more advantageous to us strategically, militarily wise, but I don't know. I think, it, I think O'Brien's like, we got to get the hell out of here. That's position. I one. mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's funny because I was making the, the Putin references. Like it, it feels a lot like the Wagner forces, like these sort of like, super soldiers that are that just had were just decapitated what do they do what are they gonna do that's what they do um and like it, it is you know it's like it, it, the dude was evil but also what's the chaos what's next you don't know dangerous so um <clears throat> so o'brien says don't help them but bashir pulls rank and orders o'brien to help him yikes which um, is literally something is a power dynamic we've never seen in this relationship. O'Brien from the beginning, even with, remember they were like marooned on a planet together and O'Brien was like, and and he was hurt, Civic was hurting. And so O'Brien was like, get your shit together, man. He's, O'Brien's always had the kind of upper hand when it comes to. He's, he's always felt like the big brother. <clears throat> yeah. But here it's like a, a good fresh reminder. Like I outrank you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's because O'Brien's not an officer. He's an enlisted man, which is, which Puts him below everybody who is an officer. And you know what we learn here, Keith? Mm. Uh, Brian doesn't give a shit. He uh, he does not. You know what I learned? It's amazing we were able to see this scene through all of the fake smoke that you can barely even see them. <laughs> O'Brien gets another piece of equipment that Bashir wanted while he talks to another Jem'Hadar in the shuttle. Neither of them, O'Brien or the Jem'Hadar, thinks any of this is a good idea, which is interesting. Then O'Brien, Lee, O'Brien secretly gets the transporter working and is able to beam himself out of the shuttle. Clever. So was the Jem'Hadar's original, was their plan where we'll get there and just like the, I guess the expectation was that the natural uh, yeah. environment, the, the ecosystem is what will heal them made it possible to to kick the habit yes that that was his that was his hypothesis on this um but clearly the people he brought are a little skeptical so uh but o'brien gets out love it clever very o'brien solution to the problem so in act three bashir is frustrated 
He can't find anything on the planet that made it possible for Garan to be saved. They're both frustrated. Bashir postulates that maybe Garan just had a genetic mutation and it has nothing to do with the planet itself, which I think probably is what happened there. The other Jem'Hadar comes in and says O'Brien escaped. Garan says, find him and bring him back alive. The Jem'Hadar says, if being cured makes you weak like this and not executing the prisoners, I don't want it. Oof. Bashir says, go try to save O'Brien. I won't try to escape. So he tells Garan to go out and try to save save O'Brien. Which is really interesting because you you wonder if the mutation that genetically allows him to not be addicted to the Ketracel White might also change his philosophies. Because the rest of the Jem'Hadar are like, hell no, I don't want this. Whether that's nature or nurture or training, interesting. Back in Quark's, Quark and the alien make the deal. Then Worf tries to arrest them both. But then, of course, Odo ungoos and is pissed that Worf just blew his undercover operation that was going to be much more extensive than this, but Worf just blew the whole thing. In the woods, O'Brien sets a trap using his tricorder and knocks out a Jem'Hadar with a snare trap thingy. It's very, very predator. Very, very predator. Well, it's very like Vietnam. Rambo. Rambo. Then uh, he goes back with the Jem'Hadar's rifle to rescue Bashir, but Bashir says, I'm not going. No, 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 no. I'm telling you, I'm not going. They continue arguing. Bashir says, just go. Leave me here. And then O'Brien, uh, like Kira with the, with the house, destroys his research and says, we're going back together. Goran appears and takes them both back as prisoners. Then he marches them through the woods back to their shuttle, and they discover <clears throat> the other Jem'Hadar there. Goran shoots him and tells O'Brien and Bashir to go. He's going to stay behind, and he knows that O'Brien will understand. He's their commander, and he, and he can't leave them behind to die. He has to kill them. He has to kill them. <clears throat> Yeah. He's that the more humane thing to do is to kill them in battle than let them slowly die of withdrawal, which is dark, mm -hmm. but I think probably true. So later in Cisco's office, he's tinkering with the fancy clock from Dramatis Personae. Worf goes in to rat himself out for blowing Odo's operation, but of course, Cisco already knows. Odo didn't mention him in his report, which is a classy move by Odo there. But, you know, Cisco knows. Cisco explains that Starfleet officers often struggle to learn the unofficial rules of the station. It's very different from a starship. Deep Space Nine has more shades of gray, and Quark is one of those shades of gray. And Quark has his own set of rules, and he follows them diligently. Once you understand them, you'll understand him. You'll fit in, just give it time. Uh, which, I, I really liked this Worf storyline. Like, it's it's not really, there's not a lot to it. Yeah. 
but I think it addresses picking up this character from one show and dropping him into another show that is very, very different. Yes, I think that the plot line is very astutely meta commentary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is it's almost breaking the fourth wall. Just like, of course, Worf coming from the super uptight, super, you know, very clear, very well lit <laughs> Enterprise D coming to this sort of Wild Westy kind of a place. He's going to have a hard time fitting in it at the start. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because it's I think it's a fairly insignificant plot line in general. But I will say that don't don't sleep on Dorn's performance again because he's being asked to really recreate a character and so he's playing yeah. all kinds of uh insecurity and and defensiveness and a lot of very uh nuanced colors that he didn't wasn't weren't really demanded of him before so it's cool to see oh yeah i mean he's he's been given so much more interesting material to work with than he ever did on the Enterprise. But you, and you're right, he's he's coming in at his most vulnerable, at his most insecure, and he deals with his insecurity like any Klingon would, by bigfooting around in the same way that Gowron is. Right? He's just sort of had a defeat, he's feeling vulnerable, he's feeling sort of, uh, I mean, insecure, so he's stomping around the quadrant in the same way that Worf is stomping around Deep Space Nine. But do uh, they know that? Where do they? That's is I don't know if it's a wormhole. It's a wormhole. Where do they think they are? O'Brien well, and Bashir. Everybody else. Nobody else seems concerned that they're somewhere else for a couple periods, for a couple extra days. They were supposed to be back. Clearly, that is a pretty fair wormhole. Although we don't know the exact timeline here. Yeah, but like, we don't, it, I don't care where they're coming back from. There would be some sort of communications being like, hey, we're, we're going to be back on Thursday. Right. <laughs> well, and, and if we're to believe that these things are happening at the same in the same timeline, then yes, that's definitely a wormhole. But this wharf thing could have happened in the week that they were gone. Yeah, but they would show so you would expect yeah. some sort of a delineation yeah. that there's different time frames happening. No, no, I, th- I think that's a wormhole. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a because because totally Ben at his clock is showing he don't he is got not a care in the world. No, he's playing with he's his clock. Outside, he escaped purgatory. He's just like clock time, clock 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 clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually when you uh, you know play with your clock in your office, you should lock the door. But yeah, well, we're not telling nobody. No, indeed. You, you know that uh, Klingons apparently have two? Anyway, uh, that's my understanding. So back on the shuttle. <laughs> O'Brien and Vashir have a tense conversation. O'Brien has disobeyed Vashir's order, orders and condemned all of those Jem'Hadar to death. And O'Brien says, yep, I did all of that to save your life. Um, and I think they both have some points here. Great twist. If you think about it, really. It's as a twists on the title of the episode, right? Is it is the oath that Bashir had to help them because they were in need, or is the oath that O'Brien did what he had to do to save Bashir's life? Right? Or well, but, and, clearly both. And but, like, yeah. How do you define harm? Right? Like, to the universe, 
which one of their tactics with the Jamhadar would have created more harm? Don't know. We really don't know. Um, but the, it's, it's also still the immediate versus the large, right? Like is, yes, in the immediate, O'Brien did what was necessary to create the circumstances to get Bashir and them out safely. But at the same time, think, and this is what I want to talk about mostly in this end of the episode, if you're if you if if you are facing the Nazis, right? Right. You know, ostensibly the biggest bad. Any tactical advantage, any potential kryptonite that you could discover is extraordinary. And to sacrifice that is is taking a pretty big risk, man. Well, and and in this case like the by re- by releasing the Jem Hadar from what controls them, it's not really a way to kill them. It's a way to kill their command structure. But we have no idea what the consequences of that would be, which That's is sort fair. of what their debate is. You know, it is the humanitarian thing to do because they are essentially slaves. Yes. Yeah, that's the big picture, but I'm just thinking even even on the more micro scale, like if they can somehow, uh, what's the word where you sort of work backwards of a technology and like to figure it out? Um, uh, reverse engineer. Yeah, reverse engineer how the founders created the Jem'Hadar, or at least their some their their molecular structure. They could have done with the little kid too. You could figure out kind of how their tech works. Oh or yeah, their, yeah, there's I mean, so if- much. It's the I reason mean, we wanted Neil, we wanted Niels Bohr, right? Like, give me the Germans, <laughs> give me those. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, if if the Federation had the ability, had had the choice, right? Had understood the technology well enough to turn it on or turn it off, um, and what you could do with that, who knows what what you would end up doing? But that would be incredibly important for the Federation to find out. Well, let's put a pin on this. So they they yes. have a tete a tete, and they say, you know what, no. D- we're not playing squash no. Monday. We'll play maybe next week. Yeah, which I I liked. Mm-hmm. I liked very much the leaving it tense. Yeah, that's because that you know w- with hope you know you know they're going to be fine, but they're not going to be fine for a while, and I think that's that okay. that makes sense. All right, what do you say we move along home and uh, finish up Hippocratico? Okay. Well, you've already identified one of them pretty well, and that is uh, wormholes in the plot. Yeah, there's that one, which is the one that kind of rung me the whole time. I was like, why is nobody looking for them? Why are we not? Nobody seems to care much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, I guess you could act to be fair with you that that's really the only one I knew. I also had been questioning, and that's why I tried to pay more attention this time, what the agency of the other Jem'Hadar people were and I think that we're done a little bit of a disservice that we don't get to know much about them like what was the point of them because ostensibly if they if from my kind of read if they don't clearly they have to die right they can't go back now because they they went AWOL from their from their command or their their whatever their front so they're kind of 
out to die anyway. They're so dead either way, yeah. Yeah, so it's clear, it's unclear what, even if they mutiny against the main guy, what they're going to achieve. They can't... Well, I, I think they would say, hey, our commander went crazy, and so we killed him and, we, and we've come back. Yeah, I guess that's and fair. And so, so I, I think they, w- they would be able to return, I think. It's quite possible that's what's going to happen. Like, that more li- the most likely scenario, unless we are to believe that he's such a badass that he's going to kill them all easier. Well, I guess they're weakened, right? Because they need the drug. Well, I don't know if they can get off the planet. Yeah. Because we don't, we don't really know, because... I, I thought that was an interesting... I thought that was an interesting storyline. I think, like, strategic... But I guess that plays plays to the strength of the episode, which is I'm very curious now about what makes the Jem'Hadar tick. Clearly, there's a lot more to them than we first thought or gave them credit for, and so I'm super interested yeah. in that, and I, I hope we revisit more of it, to be honest well, and, with you. And we know that they do have a command structure mm-hmm. amongst themselves as opposed to just the Vortas in charge. Um, and so, yeah, and, and they have their own, you know, we're beginning to unravel their own sort of ethics their own ethos their own rules amongst themselves how they see themselves individually versus part of the of their squad um so yeah no because the sci-fi of it is really cool i was thinking like think if you think of the jamhead are coming off like a conveyor belt right they're as babies they you've got to imagine they've got some tech that can probably catch these anomalies yeah most likely they just slaughter them at birth right he just somehow slipped through the cracks or it developed it was latent and they didn't catch it and it developed late. Yeah, There's so many something. possible yeah. sci-fi sort of narratives with this that are super cool. Uh so I hope that it's not just a one-off, because if it's a one-off, it really cheapens the effect of it, I think, strategically. But I don't know. That's the only major wormhole was like, why is nobody looking for O'Brien? Or at least yeah. saying, like, are they where are they? That's weird. Because we I don't get the sense that it was more than like twenty-four hours extra. But they would have been in communication constantly um, because of the relay that we put in. And that's our head doctor. And, yeah, and, and our chief, chief engineer. engineer, so yeah. They're, 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 they're two regular cast members. you got to keep ties on them. All right, so I, I don't have anything else that you didn't say, so let's, talk, let's do our best moment. Man, there's so much good stuff. Uh, uh, you know what? Damn, we always, I should be more specific, but I will say... I've often find myself all but saying out loud, I don't think Alexander Siddig is very, is is as skilled an actor often as some of his castmates, which which makes him stand out as, I don't think he's bad, but often I think he's the weakest link as an actor. However, when he's good, when he's on, he's really good i think he's excellent in this episode i think Mm, i do too when he's defiant that scene where he's defiant to the chief and he's like i know what i'm doing i have a gut read i followed your gut many times here i've got a gut read and and i'm your boss or i'm your you know i'm a ranking officer i think he brings the heat and i think he makes his point saliently and i think it's intense and i i think it's a great performance so i want to give him his props when he gets it yeah, I, I I I agree. I, I think that this is where O'Brien starts getting traction. The character the character that we are going to continue to build our relationship with is this guy. Is the guy who is 
He's very bright, but he's very passionate. It's he takes these moral stances. He's he fights for stuff, and that like the horny Bashir of season one is not who the Bashir that we will remember as Bashir, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I think Alex, you know, I I don't think he's bad. I I, I think he's just very. He was very young when he was cast, yeah. and I think that the experience that I mean, going up against a Colomini who has been an experienced stage and screen and television actor for 20 years before he got here, where this is Siddick's essentially first job. Like, I'm sure it's rubbing off. Yeah. Right, you're, oh, yeah. you're dealing with these incredibly experienced actors everywhere you are. Um, but, I, but I think he is much better suited to this, to this type of Dr. Bashir. Um, the thoughtful, the passionate the man of integrity who who when given something to fight for as opposed to just sort of like be there and be young and cocky is a much more compelling character and a much more compelling performance yeah um so yeah i mean i i think for me it's i i I think it is it is exactly that moment where bashir pulls rank because it is uncomfortable and and it is it is difficult and we have to sit in the discomfort of that within their friendship um but it is also real life and i think they both made excellent points i think they they both really had intelligent important things to say um i thought it was just a a well-written and well-performed scene and it's an important plot point because and you don't see it often right new this with this much nuance listen be it a marriage, be it a partnership business-wise, that, be it a, a friendship that includes a business partnership, or you're on the job, or whatever the... There's all types, types of relationships and nuance within. But they... Let me tell you what never happens. Successful ones are never because the two people agree all the time. That is not yeah. what forges great relationships, right? Great relationships are forged in the fire. I've, res- uh, you know, a great example. I don't know why this popped in my head, but you know, a show was I loved and is just like I still love watching it as a masterpiece in so many ways of reality television show is MythBusters. Mm. Jamie Heineman, Adam Savage, their partnership is so great. Their chemistry is exquisite, and they did not like each other. They were not <laughs> friends. Interesting. But they respected each other's intelligence. They respected each other's work ethic. They respected the thing they were building together. Even when it pained one of them to do it, if you were right, you're right. So we're doing your way. Yeah. And if you can establish that type of respect, look, it's nice if there's a friendship on top of that. Perhaps it can blossom out of that. But at the end of the day, it's mutual respect and it's mutual care for one another. And that's what you see here. These, they disagree the whole freaking time about how they're going to go about it and even the outcome or or what they should be doing. But here we see that it's it's not that they don't respect each other. It's that it, it's just great because you see that we need these the, we need to melt the armor a little bit so that the next time when we put it back in the in the fire we can we can make it stronger. Yeah, it's like folding a sword. Yeah, no, I mean, and and I, I think that the um, being able to pass back and forth the power is how respect is really given 
because like you know to respect is really about being willing to let the other person be in charge when it's appropriate for them to be in charge and um you know and and certainly all good friendships or relationships or partnerships need to have that ability you know and like in 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 mike in my life there are times outside of the KM empire where like mike legitimately will be the boss of me and other times where i'll legitimately be the boss of him and the way that we show respect to each other is like okay great yeah that's a, that that is our situation today and you know if i'm if i'm helping mike with his job he's the boss of me if he's working on something i wrote i'm the boss of him and that's and that and that is sort of the the way that works and that's respect that is and respect which that is, is respect is something that is just like uh I, respect is a very it's a, it's a whole different conversation but you know the, often the sort of the turn of phrase is that respect is earned right and there's a lot of truth there's a, a ton of truth to that but there are circumstances where it is implied as well and here is an example where we'll see the ramifications of look the respect should be implied that Bashir is he outranks him and and military ranking and such is such that you don't question it that's why the Jem'Hadar are a great uh, yeah. example and here it, it, too and that unquestioning hierarchical structure is has a purpose it's not just ego there's a reason it's, that there is a structure of command and it is it is for all of our mutual benefit to have a rigid command structure and sometimes um, it's a it's a straw uh what's the what's the just straw man in straw that man, yeah. i'll give you an example that we're dealing with in our time our current time and i don't want to get into the weeds of it but there's a it's very easy to say and believe that no one is above the law keith but when continually you as like a, a law-abiding citizen learn that there are many people above the law yeah the chinks in the armor start to show the whole thing breaks down yeah whole things breaks breaks down if if we do not have structure uh otherwise you you know i'm not gonna get into it anyway uh Yes, so that is my best moment. Mike, let's hand out some self-sealing Yeah, one of the only things in our society, Keith, that means anything and, and maintains its mm -hmm. worth and respect yeah. Uh, yeah. are the self-sealing stempel. It's, it's gold and self-sealing stempel. <laughs> You know, we've said it before. For me, some of the best Deep Space Nines are things that, well, are really small moments and mm -hmm. really big moments where we learn about ramifications of things and galactic movement and such. This is one I think is on a smaller scale, both things kind of, for me. And it's great sci fi because it asks really tough questions. It, and it, and it observes and analyzes potential flaws in our system or in the structure that we've built i think we are looking at a friendship and the the, the gives and takes of mutual respect like we talked about we're also looking at a kind of tried and true trope of the first do no harm and take care of your fellow man be it, be it a, a an enemy soldier across lines or be it your best buddy who's injured or whatnot and we look at the how what happens when you put that to the test and there are conflicting interests 
but also for me, and, and those are all really cool things. And some of the best sci-fi, like we said, has no right answer, right? And even that can be analyzed. Is it a cop-out or is it great sci-fi writing because you have to weigh both sides? And I think the episode does a great job explaining both sides and, and leaving it to the audience to maybe not even make a choice. It Maybe just come to the realization of, yeah, it's not black and white. It's all gray, baby. It's all gray. On top of that, I love, 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 love that our Jem'Hadar, look, we've set up the Dominion, the Jem'Hadar, the as this just unstoppable force, and they've got all this high-tech stuff. And I love when we learn, and they're dolloping out, so only season, third episode, season four, like, look, it's not all hunky-dory over there. It's, you know, like, there are some disgruntled, uh, <laughs> uh, soldiers uh, working on the Death Star, right? Like, it's not... Yeah. <laughs> some, yeah, of them, sure. th- some of them want to strike because they ain't get any good food in the cafeteria. Uh, and, you know, maybe Bashir has learned something from that research, or maybe all they learned was that, hey, they're not all willing to play ball. Some of them want yeah. out, right? They're not as mindless as we're thinking they are. And if nothing else, that could provide hope Right, that could be like a feather in the cap of, of of a Cisco in a good, a really good pregame speech. Right, if it's nothing but that, it's still something. So we're moving that huge plot forward a little bit, a little dollop, and that is good sci-fi. Here are my weaknesses for the episode. I'll I'll name them. One, I think the B plot, though it's kind of good for Worf, and it's kind of neat to see actually Quark. Because what we never really get to see, anytime Quark has been a help to us, right, it's been by folly or by, we're going to put you in prison if you don't do this, right? Right. By, right. by uh, With a gun to your head. Duress, yeah. yeah. Here, we realize that ostensibly, what, what we can only assume is that all along, he's been doing us little favors, some covert operations, some this. He's like Garrick, right? right. He's clearly a back channel in some ways. He's earning his keep, right? He's paying his, he's he's paying the vig, as we'd say. Right. Uh so but outside of that, it's just like uh it's it's almost unnecessary, the B plot. Like I, I the B story. I almost feels like we mm-hmm. could have been all A. Minor quibble, because still there's some we learn some things. It's good for Worf, and like I said, it's it's good to see Quark do something different. Here's what stood out to me, and it's stupid. So, but it's a knit, and I'm gonna pick it. They've the Dominion, the they've got, they've got all the best tech. They've got all of this. They've got all that. There, and yet, because of production limitations, we're on a soundstage, and so like when we're on the planet, and they're like, "Here's our lab we've set up for you." It's like bad. It's hokey. It looks like Gilligan's Island. It looks like, and I guess you could be like, oh, well, they're crash landed on this planet. But come on, they didn't have some science gear on the ship or something. It just looks, it doesn't look good. Well, yes. However, the Dominion is going to have all of that. The Jem'Hadar, they have no use for science. They they have no, they don't have a sick bay. All right, so they got two beakers and a couple coconuts. Whatever. It looked hokey. Yeah. But and it looked hokey because the makeup, the costume design of them is so good. So it's yeah. like the set dressing kind of dropped the ball on that one. So that's yeah, that's fair. All that said, this is a this is pro, pro, my guess is probably the most kind of ho hum ish episode of the season, and it's still a banger. 
right? Because it made me think. I'm still thinking about it. I loved it. I almost wished it was a two-parter. Like, let me learn more about the Jem'Hadar. I'm into espionage and all that crap so anyway i think i think very highly of it i say 91 self-sealing stem bolts yeah yeah well i mean i have have good news for you we're gonna spend a lot of time uh exploring the gem hadar and and all of that so um all of this these philosophical questions this you know this whole world we're gonna spend a lot more time in so good news um yeah, I mean, I I think it's a good episode. I think um, I think you're right. the the wharf the B story. I think it's necessary and and good to sort of tell that story and get that piece of uh, um, wharf integrating the. I think there's just a more interesting interesting way to do it. Yeah. I think the it's a little bit of repeated beats with, um, you know, questioning Odo and thinking Quark's about like we've now done that several times with a couple of different people i think that there there might have been just a more interesting um structure to have told that story with Worf. like find something a little bit more specific to Worf. Mm-hmm. find some other way to show him butting heads with this new gray areas um, than just like Quark meeting with another random alien about a, some random transaction that we have. By this point, we have seen that, oh, Quark is making a deal with some shady alien like 30 times, <laughs> you know? And so I think there's there's just a more interesting way to tell that story. But I think it's an important story to tell. I think Cisco's sort of speech to him about like, hey, you're going to have to adjust to this because it works differently. I think his line about... Quark living by his own set of rules, and once you understand them, you understand Quark. That's a great line. I yeah. think Cisco's Cisco's part of that story is great. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, okay. Um, structurally important. Could have used a different seasoning. Um, I really liked the conflict between Bashir and O'Brien. I think that that was both sort of philosophically interesting. You know, to discuss what is the greater good, what is what are our responsibilities here? We're captors, you know, or, or, or have been taken captive. Like, what is the right thing to do there? But I think it's also tied to their characters so specifically that it's O'Brien. It's great that it's O'Brien with that point of view because he's he's a war vet. He mm-hmm. has gone through it. He has seen it. He has seen the dark sides of war. He's bringing to it some. Uh, inertia from his life experience and Bashir the opposite he really hasn't been he's young he's idealistic he's a scientist he's a doctor he's thinking about it from a completely different set of lived experiences or lack of lived experiences and so he's he's in a position to be more optimistic to be um, more idealistic than O'Brien is, so it makes sense. They chose the right characters to lay this story on, and it makes a lot of sense. So it's all, you know, it's all good writing. I love learning more about the Gem Hadar. I think the, you know, we get some very important little nuggets of information here that they didn't put too hard of a button on, but are going to be very important moving forward, um, which I think is is just good 
writing and i think that this you know i talk about storytelling inertia this episode really benefits from the inertia that we've told you know the stories that we've told getting here um so i really liked all of those pieces you know is it a like a, a banger of an episode for me no it's a it's a it's a very solid very good episode it's it's nothing like the previous episodes this season so um i think it's a you know for me this is a really good like you know average season four plus episode and i'm like okay yeah great solid you know nothing to write home about but very solid um so for me it gets 84 self-sealing stem bolts and you, you know perhaps like you talked about recalibrating mm-hmm. it is maybe maybe that's a little bit of a recalibrated number because you know this is the new average mm-hmm. um well we got I people feel- handing out 101s now i mean it's, everything <laughs> is just off the chart so we're gonna need to figure out how it's all gonna come to be but. no but like you know i what i feel about it is like if this is our new like yeah episode we're doing pretty damn yeah. well uh, so there you go. The IMDb ranking says this is a 7.6 out of 10. This is the 74th best episode of Deep Space Nine out of 173. So slightly above average uh, in basic Deep Space Nine world. Up next, we are going to be talking about the episode Indiscretion. Uh, that will be fun and interesting. I can't wait to talk about it. I uh, want to say thank you again to all of our patrons, our new and old all the tremendous support that we've been getting. Um, I really, really enjoyed talking through The Visitor with everybody who who watched it. If you would like uh, to continue the conversation about Hippocratic Oath, you can just leave a comment below right here on the YouTube feed. If you want us to read it, just leave us a little, yeah, super thanks right there. Um, Everybody join join the patron. You know, we we tried to make it as almost free as possible. Just, you know, just come hang out with us. It's fun. So uh, there it is. You can check out our other shows. Look at my Star Trek toys, KNM Geekly. Uh, we have finished Strange New Worlds up until this point, but all of that is archived below if you want to see this whole thing on uh, talking about Strange New Worlds. So there it is. Mike, that is it. We'll see you back here next week with Indiscretions. Till then, this has been Keith and Mike. Watch Deep Space Nine! Thank you for watching KM Entertainment. If you enjoyed our particular brand of nonsense, please like and subscribe. Or become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash KM. <laughs>